we are going to turn to John chapter 8. Actually, at the end of John chapter 7, verse 53, on to 8, 1 through 11. And we're going to get into it. There's some heavy and beautiful stuff this morning. So let's read the word of the Lord. Here's what it says. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Father, you are good. Your word is good, and it reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us the person and work of Christ. And Lord, would you do that today? That's our prayer, that we would see Jesus. Help us to see Christ. May we marvel at you today. May we experience your very presence here through the preaching of your word by your Holy Spirit. We love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Gentleness or righteousness? The love of the people... Or the law of God? Mercy or, or justice? Grace or truth? Moses or Caesar? Choose, Jesus. You need to choose. Pick your side. It's time to make it known. They, that is the religious leaders, had conspired and schemed to put Jesus on the horns of a devilish dilemma, to put him into some kind of double bind, a condemned if you do, a condemned if you don't kind of moment, a Scylla and Charybdis, a a rock and a hard place, a back against the wall situation. And would Jesus show gentleness or would he show righteousness? Would he show favor for the love of the people in popular opinion or would he show favor for the law would he side with mercy would he side with justice would he side with grace or would he side with truth would he go against moses or would he go against caesar it was a trap it was a snare meant to expose and destroy jesus to put him in a vulnerable spot, a no-win situation. 
These leaders were crafty, and they were playing dirty. And the bait that they were using was a woman. The bait was a woman. They were also going to use the word of God as well. God's own word and a woman. Those were to be the bait. Those were to be the ammunition and the weapons against this Jesus. Now, this scene, as as you can already tell, is filled with ugliness, right? It's just filled with terrible evil. Yet, at the same time, it's, it's filled with the breath of heaven. And here, amidst the inhumanity and the shame and the, and the condemnation, we're going to see something uh, amazing. And um, I think uh, the best way to talk about it, what I'll call it this morning, is God's double move of love. God's double move of love. Now what is that? Jesus confronts our sin, and Jesus covers our shame. Jesus confronts our sin, and he covers our shame. So call that the, the main point this morning. Call that the crucial idea, the, the big idea. Jesus confronts our sin and he covers our shame. Now how does he do it? And what we're going to see is it's, it's pretty strange. It's, it's pretty, pretty bizarre. He gets into the dirt. That's how he does it. He gets in the dirt. Now uh, some caveats and some explanations before we dig into this text. Um, there's some double brackets that we have to deal with. So if you were reading from your Bible, almost any translation, you will see a set of double brackets there at at chapter 7, verse 53, on to the end of chapter 8, verse 11. So what's the deal with these double brackets? Well, these brackets tell us that there's a bit of controversy surrounding this passage. These brackets tell us that there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over the centuries regarding this this passage. So, So I'll get right to it. In short, the earliest of the ancient manuscripts that, that have been found um, of, of John, they do not include these verses. So the earliest of the ancient manuscripts found do not include these verses. They don't include the story of the woman caught in adultery. And a lot of the early church fathers who were writing on the scriptures, commentating, um, don't address it as well. But th- then there are some early church fathers and, and a little bit later fathers who do And so we have St. Augustine and then Ambrose and some others who do comment on them as well. So the question is, is it original? Is this text original? Should should it be there? I mean, it's a beloved story, we know that. It's it's many people's uh, favorite story, well-known and often turned to. So is the scripture, does it belong there? Well, can I definitively tell you that it was there in the autographs, the original writings there by by John? Um, Turns out I wasn't there. So I don't know. Like, I, I, just, I don't know. Um, but here's what I can tell you absolutely definitively. Um, this passage, though contested regarding its inclusion in the canon, is not contested in its consistency, its coherency, and its alignment with the scriptures and the Jesus that they reveal to us, which is why it remains there. And, and I do want to say this. If this is troubling to you, if, if you're just wondering if you can even trust the Bible, and here you are at church, and now you're hearing me say this isn't in there, you're like, whoa, like how do I, how do I trust any of this? Um, I would say this should function in the opposite way, as a reason to trust the scriptures, their veracity, their, their reliability, their authenticity. Um, th- this academic uh, studying of the scriptures has shown us that we have so many manuscripts, um, early attestations to the truth of these scriptures, to the fact that these are authentic, 
We have so many of these. We have more documents regarding the veracity or the truth of these scriptures than we do of things like um, Caesar's Gallic Wars and writings regarding Plato and Tacitus and, and all, these, all these things that are always considered historical in any academic setting. So the fact is we have more evidence for the truth of these scriptures being authentic. And so um, this kind of study should, should help us uh, increase our trust rather than, than diminish it. So that said, our text today is chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, and it's going to be examined this morning in partnership with a number of other texts which aren't contested in any way, shape, or form. And the goal today is the same as always. To see Jesus, to see how beautiful he is, and to marvel at him. Um, and so we are going to see him confront sin and cover shame so speaking of shame i i spilled tea like all over my pulpit here and it's running down my leg now so that's twice i spilled the same tea this morning so there we go um all right we're gonna dig into it john 7 53 here's what it says they went each to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them So, quick word on where we are in the story context. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has been at a week-long mega party, the Feast of, do you remember? Tabernacles, right? The the Feast of Tabernacles are called the Feast of, of Booths, and that's because it's celebrating when God carried the people through the wilderness, and they were kind of glamping for a long time, right? They were out there in the wilderness, and so Jesus was taking care of them. This is around October, so to speak. Um, somewhere in the first few weeks of October, the people have been celebrating God and his, and his provision. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem. The city is swollen with people. There's just people everywhere, and he's, he's teaching. Now, in this time frame, there's been all sorts of confrontations with Jesus, right? All sorts of run-ins with the religious leaders, with the power players of the day. And they are trying to debunk Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to deconstruct Jesus' influence on the people, and they've been plotting. They have been scheming to take him down, and today in our passage, uh, while Jesus is out in public there at the temple teaching, something wicked uh, his way comes. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, literally in the Greek, in the middle, placing her in the middle, tuck that away, put that here, we're going to use that. They put her in the middle, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So there's Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God of God, and along comes this serious-looking group of men tromping his way, and right there in the midst of them is this woman, disheveled, a mess, you know, her, her hair undone, obviously emotional, and they shove her into the middle of this crowd. They shove her into the circle of all these onlookers. This is harsh, overexposing spotlight that is now hitting her, right? This is public shaming. There's there's no other way to say it. This is a public 
shaming, a cruel, a cruel humiliation. But here's the strange thing. These religious leaders aren't really after her. She's an object to them, right? She's a pawn in their, in their game of, of power chess. She's, she's simply a means to an end. Who's their prey? Who are they after? Jesus, yeah. Yeah, they're there to devour him. She just happens to be the way they're going to do it. So she functions as a weapon, as ammunition against Jesus. And again, the other weapon that they are trying to use against Jesus is God's word, right? This woman and God's word. So look at what they say there in verse, verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Okay, we're going to read a few hard texts. You guys ready? Seatbelt on? You ready to go? Um, we are going to look at two texts from the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that they're drawing um, this conversation from their knowledge of the law. And here's what I need you to do. We're going to read these, and as we read them, help me spot um, a glaring issue that is happening in John chapter 8 with Jesus, this woman, and these leaders, okay? There's a glaring issue, and these two verses will help us. So put your detective glasses on. Help me out. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Now those are, those are heavy Heavy texts, and we can't address them fully, but maybe we will address them in a powerful way by going with John 8 here. Um, so here's what's going on. There they are in the temple courts, right? The religious leaders, the crowd, Jesus, and this woman. Who's missing? The man is missing. Where in the world is he? Mm, that's a good one. That's a good one. He might be in the circle. His absence is incredibly suspicious. Where is the man? This smacks of some kind of setup. It smacks certainly of, of bias, of bigotry, misogyny, of women like these, right? It's just, it's there in the text. If we, if we have the eyes to see it, see, regarding this adultery, the sexual immorality with someone that's not your spouse, the guilty parties had to be caught in the act. And here's how it works with adultery like this. It kind of takes two, right? So where's the guy? Where's her partner? Why is he not there? What, what does this show us? This shows us that the, the religious leaders aren't really concerned about following God's word. They are using God's word and they are using this woman for their own broken agenda and they are picking and choosing scriptures. All this to say, the scene's thick with guilt, right? It's just thick with guilt. The guilt of the woman, the guilt of the man who's curiously absent, likely there on the edge somewhere, and the guilt of the religious leaders who are playing this wicked game that they're playing. Now again, what is the dilemma here that Jesus is faced with? Well, let's tease this out a little bit. If Jesus says to stone her, why is this problematic for Jesus? 
Well, the religious leaders have been watching. They've been listening to his teaching. They know what they're saying about Jesus. Jesus is the friend of what? He's a friend of sinners. He's been talking about grace and mercy. He's been dispensing forgiveness. They want to be with him because he does this weird thing. He embraces them. It's really weird. So if he says stone her, he's going to be seen as a hypocrite and his public ministry is going to be shot. An opinion of him dissolves. If he said not to stone her, well then he would have been charged with going against Mosaic law. He wouldn't have been a good teacher. He wouldn't have been a holy man and he's discredited. Also, more so, if he had said to stone her, he would have been put on an immediate collision course with the Roman authorities because the Jewish people under Roman occupation were not allowed to do executions without permission from the Romans. So if Jesus says stone her, they have immediate fodder to have somebody go whisper into a Roman guard's ear and said they're going to kill her because Jesus, and Jesus would have been put to death under the hand of Rome. <laughs> like, it's crafty, right? This is, this is crafty. I mean, it's smart in the most wicked, ugly kind of way. So how will Jesus deal with this double bind, this dilemma? Just brilliantly. Watch this. Verses 6 or 9. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, they're saying, come on, tell us, tell us. He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Okay, so this moment's tense, right? But here's the deal. Jesus won't be bullied into unhurried reaction. He will not let that push him into saying something dumb, saying something, you know, half thought. So what does he do? Well, he slows it all down. And he slows it down by bending down. He gets in the dirt and he starts to write something in the dirt. Now this is weird, right? This is, this is strange and it's a mystery. People are wondering throughout the centuries, what is he writing? What, quite literally, what on earth is Jesus writing? Like what is he doing? There's a number of theories. Some say he wrote the names of all those people who are accusing the woman. You know, he's writing their names and then he's writing their sins. That'd freak you out, right? You'd be like, and I'm out. Maybe that's what he's doing. Um, Others say this is hearkening back to Sinai. Remember it said that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger. And some say he's writing the Ten Commandments and Jesus is writing the Ten Commandments with his finger as a way of saying, don't you realize I'm the author of the law and I'm writing it again for you with my divine finger. Come on, that's just cool. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's what's going on. Some of that in there. Others say he's writing some other passage from Scripture. Some say, very specifically, he's writing out Jeremiah 17, 13. You guys know that off the top of your head, right? Here's what Jeremiah 17, 13 says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth or the soil or the dust. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. 
Now, you know why I, I think this one's fascinating? We already said it. What's the feast that's happening at this season? Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They're celebrating God's provision in the wilderness. He provided food and shelter and all sorts of things. He also provided for them living water. And Jesus stood up during this festival and he said, I am the living water. So here you have this festival, living water. Jesus says he's a living water. They keep forsaking him and now he's writing in the ground that they have forsaken him. I mean, come on. If this isn't what he's writing, this is a prophecy that came true in that very moment. So cool. But ultimately, look, I, I mean, I don't, don't know what he wrote. I can't say definitively about that uh, either. Um, but um, we can change the question. We can change the question. Not, not what did he write, but maybe why did he kneel to write something? Why, could, why couldn't he just have said something that would have captured their attention? He wrote for a reason. Why? Well, first, um, Jesus has a calm and unhurried response, right? Um, he takes his time. I find this so beautiful in an age that's bullying us to to have immediate responses to everything. He takes his time, and he's doing something odd and mysterious. Track me with me. He's doing something odd and mysterious, which means they're wondering what he's doing. Everyone's wondering what he's doing. And you know what he's just done then. Who is in the middle with everyone's eyes gazing at her with a gaze of shame. Who is in the middle? Jesus has just functionally transferred the searing gaze of shame attached to that woman and drawn all their eyes to himself. The humanity and pathos of that. Jesus takes their eyes from this poor woman and transfers their look to him. He doesn't just say something, he does something that makes people wonder, so they're looking They're looking at him. That gaze of shame is functionally transferred to Jesus in that moment. Jesus is acknowledging by doing this that there is more than guilt at play. There is shame here, right? Now, a few words on guilt and shame that are going to help us today. I hope so, at least. What is the difference between guilt and shame? Is there a difference? Because we use them interchangeably. Well, guilt and shame, you could say, are siblings. Guilt and shame, you could say, are twins, but they're, they're not identical twins. They're related, but not identical. So what is guilt? Guilt is a state of having done something you should not have done. We all know that. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. Guilt. It's having committed an act of something unloving or unacceptable, so to speak. Shame's a bit different. Shame is a sense about the self. It's a sense about the self that you are less than you should be. It's the felt experience that you are unlovable. You are unacceptable. So to shorten it, uh, guilt is what we do. It's I did. Shame is who I am. Right? I did. I am. So, again, then we'll come at this a little bit differently. Guilt is, I did bad, therefore it leads to punishment. Shame is, I, I am bad. I deserve rejection and to be an outcast from the community. What we do, guilt, who we are, shame. So, a few examples here. Um, so, let's say there's an issue in, in your home with your, your kids and you're having a conversation with your son. And um, 
you, you approach it like this. You say, you, you lied to us. All the parents are like, no, this doesn't happen, right? You, you, lied, you lied to us. You lied to your, your other siblings, and, and it hurt them, and it hurt us. We need to talk about what you did and why this is wrong and unhealthy. Okay, that, that's um, a guilt context. This is what you've done. This needs to be addressed, right? Approach it through a shame narrative. Like, I, I can't believe my son's a liar. You, you feel it, right? Automatically. You're a liar. Now you're in a shame context. Game changed. Suddenly there's an even bigger barrier between you. Uh, I'll make a personal... Um, uh, I'm a pastor. Surprise, surprise. And um, you know, I can think of a time or two where I remember hearing about somebody who, who um, felt frustrated by me or, or hurt because they had reached out and, and then I hadn't followed up. So guilt narrative is like, man, I dropped the ball on that. I had every opportunity. Uh, I, I didn't. I should have. And I, I feel really bad that I, I hurt someone. You know where my brain goes. Shame narrative. Shame narrative. You are a terrible pastor. Here again is evidence that this is not your calling, this is not who you are, imposter syndrome, all over this thing. You're going to be exposed. You're a bad pastor. You're an idiot. That's the self-talk, right? Shame territory, right? Um, or here, here's one. This one's super practical. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, you're in a conversation with your, your spouse, your, your kids, your friend, an employer, um, and you start to use these words. Marla, feel free to laugh out loud when I say this, okay? Um, you use the words always or never. You always. You never. You have just moved from some inciting incident about what somebody did that caused this disruption. You have just moved from a guilt context to an identity context. You are always doing this. You are never doing that. You're saying that's who they are, so that's how they operate, and they've done it again because that's who they are, and they're not going to change. You feel it? You see it? And look, we experience both of these realities in the world. We know what it feels like to do something wrong. We know what guilt feels like. I don't need to tell you. We know what shame feels like. You have hidden, right? I have hidden. Uh, when we, we hide when we feel unlovable, unwanted, uh, or like we feel like our existence is a disappointment to God and to other people, right? We know what it feels like to be shamed by a parent, by a spouse, by, by a sibling, by a friend, by a boss. We have shamed a parent, a spouse, a boss, a friend. Because shame begets shame. Right? That's how it works. Shame begets shame as a coping mechanism. I love how psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says it. He says, shamed people shame people. Shamed people shame people. And, and I would add to that, condemned people condemn people. So let me ask you a question then. Have you ever done something that you know is undeniably wrong? And 110% of us go, Yeah. Okay, that's, that's part A of the question. Part B of the question. Um, after doing something you know is wrong, rather than turning to God, have you avoided prayer for a while? Have you avoided turning to the scriptures for a while? Have you avoided coming to church or seeing some fellow b believers for a while? 
you know, until it slips God's mind that you did the thing that you did, right? More often than not, it's not because you realize that you have some guilt. You know that, duh. It's because you feel ashamed and you don't want to feel more ashamed. So you don't want to go into a context where you might somehow feel more unloved, more unaccepted. And if that's you, like if you've come in here today feeling shame, feeling like God is going to shame you or the church community somehow is going to shame you or the scriptures are going to shame you, I just have super good news for you. And it's coming. So we're only a little bit into our verses, so let's keep rolling. Okay, so the woman has been found out. She's been exposed, guilty, now judged, condemned. She's the target of community disgust. She's shamed in the violence of this public humiliation. She's rejected. Now look at how brilliant and loving Jesus' response is. So verses 7 and 8. So he was writing on the ground. Now he stands up and he says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bends down to write on the ground. Twice. So what's the effect? Well, the accusers start walking away, right? Because Jesus has brilliantly put them in a bind. They know they can't say, oh, I'm sinless. They know the, the, the scriptures. So they're, they're in big trouble if they say, okay, well, that'll be me because then they'll be going against scripture. So they can't do that. So they're like, oh, what do we do? Now, who walks away first? Who does it say? The older one. This is, this is fascinating to me. So maybe it's because of the years of, of prudence and, and reasoning and politicking and understanding consequences to public actions. Maybe, maybe it's because of that. Maybe they're older and they're like, I've had more chance to sin, so obviously I've, I've sinned. Uh, maybe it's just, you know, some wisdom tempering their emotions and urges that some of the, the more younger, hot-headed leaders don't have. But regardless, they start walking away. Now, uh, what has Jesus just done? This is so great. One, Jesus has just upheld the law. He could not be accused of going against Moses. Nope, can't be accused of that. But by saying that only a sinless person could throw the first stone, he thrusts into the light the fact that we are all sinners in need of salvation, that we are all in need of God's mercy, and that we should enter into relationship with with other people by lifting up mercy and grace. He's just thrust mercy and love as the fulfillment of the law into the limelight. This is another way of saying what James chapter 2 says, is is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't get that messed up. It's not mercy triumphs over justice. It's mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Love is being put forward here to fulfill the law, not counter the law. Jesus is just, he's awesome. And he's called them all out as guilty, right? Now, notice what does Jesus do? After he says this about throwing the stone, what is his action again? What is it? Yeah, he, he's bending down. Why does he go back into the sand? They're all leaving. The religious crew is leaving. They are all slinking away in another form of shame. In his mercy, he draws attention back to himself while everyone else, while these leaders are walking away in shame. So instead of pointing at them going, nah, nah, right? He draws the attention back to himself and he lets them leave. What a gracious Savior we have. Isn't that incredible? See, look, where there is shame, Jesus turns eyes to look upon him so that he can heal. 
And then this, this brings us to our conclusion. The, the words between Jesus and the woman. Um, look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. So let's notice a few things together here. Uh, first, notice he stays in the dirt until his accusers are gone. When they're gone, he stands up. He gives them that time. He draws the attention. Now they're gone. And what does he do? He dignifies this woman with a question. He wants her to register what has happened. She is not an object. She is not a non-entity. She is not some some ball to be kicked back and forth in some theological game with, with these guys. Jesus sees her humanity. Jesus sees her agency. And he speaks to her as the image bearer of God she is. He says, who condemns you? And she's like, no one. And he says, yeah, neither do I. And he is the sinless one who could throw the first stone. So what's happened? There's been a huge pivot. Exposed and shamed has now been transformed to known and loved. Exposed and shamed has been transformed to known and loved. And what's the pivot? The merciful, gracious, self-sacrificial presence of Christ. It's incredible. He brings justice and mercy together there in the dirt. He brings confrontation and forgiveness together there in the dirt. Jesus confronts our sin and he covers our shame. Now, um, I, I said the big point of this message is Jesus confronts our sin and he covers our shame, right? Let's expand that just a little bit to maybe make it a little more helpful for us. Let's say it this way, Jesus confronts our sin without condemning us, and Jesus covers our shame to restore us. See, Jesus, um, he doesn't condone sin in any way, right? He, he confronts and he covers shame. It, it's the trifecta. It's, it's what we need to be restored and made whole. And so you can see the justice of Jesus here. The justice of Jesus here in that he confronts sin. He doesn't condone sin in any way. Everyone's confronted. We're confronted. And then the mercy of Jesus is seen in that he doesn't condemn the sinner. He tries to minimize and absorb the shame. The sacrificial love of Jesus is seen in that, that he covers the shame. So the justice of Jesus is seen, the mercy of Jesus is seen in not condemning the sinner, and the sacrificial of Jesus is seen in the covering of the shame. Like, this is good news. And some of us here today, like, you just, you just think God is out to get you. Like, he's, he's like, on the, the edge of heaven with some, like, cosmic ruler, kind of giddy, waiting for you to step out of line, and then he's, he's got you. And then he's like, now you see how glorious I am because you're such a schmuck, right? Like, we just, we just have the sense sometimes that he's ready to pounce and to shame. And Jesus says, I'm ready to embrace you. I'm ready to cover your shame and to clear your guilt, to bring you home. Some of us this morning, we need to hear that because we get an an image of God from the world around us and and we're hearing voices and we're applying that to how we think the world works, right? We we live in a a cancel culture that, that takes offense 
and has a trigger finger ready to shame everyone in a moment. Because shamed people shame, condemned people condemn. And we live in a condemning and shaming culture, and we carry it forward. But the reality is, the cancel culture and being offended and shaming people is simply not the way of Jesus, and it's not the way of the kingdom. And so this here is the Jesus of the Bible that we see in, in John 8. He, he's not just the Jesus here in this passage, but he's the Jesus of the Gospels. He's the Jesus of Paul's letters. So listen to these two verses. Let me just read them and, and let the Holy Spirit do his work uh, in you through these verses. John three sixteen through 18. You guys could quote it to me, I'm sure, but here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We're not condemned in Christ. In Christ is the key. Romans 8, go to Paul. Same Jesus we find in Paul. 8, verses 1 through 4, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Like, I feel you. That one's dense. Like, wait, what? Translation. Jesus did what we could not do. Son of God came, took on flesh, lived out love perfectly, fulfilled the law with love, then gave us a spirit that we might now walk by the Spirit because of what he's done. There's no condemnation. Free of guilt. Free of shame. At the cross, Jesus took our place taking the judgment of sin that we deserve, he deals with real guilt that enslaves, clears us. At the cross, Jesus bore our shame, like naked and humiliated, literally on a cross next to a highway, the, uh, the, the object uh, of mocking and jeering. He takes that shame to usher us into intimacy with God and each other. And Jesus told this woman that he did not condemn her, not simply because he felt some kind of compassion for her, which he did, because he knew who he was, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew he would go to the cross to make this an actuality. At the cross, he entered down into the dirt, quite literally, down into the dirt to atone for guilt, down into the dirt to cover shame. So, what can we take from this? What are some of the applications when it comes to how do we confront others? Because there are times that we should, and it's loving. And then how do we deal with being confronted? <laughs> so, a few things here. That'll bring us to an end. One, um, when confronting, remember Jesus has not condemned you. You have to start here. You have to start from your position of security of knowing that you are loved by him and you are not condemned by him because this changes the tone. This changes um, the venue and the way in which you engage people. This changes how you go about it and, and the position, the heart position from which you enter into those conversations. You have to start here. 
Second, don't confuse confrontation of sin with condemnation or shaming, and we do this all the time. We're like, I need to confront them. But we go about it in an un-Jesus-like worldly way where we're looking to beat somebody in an argument. We're, we, we want to show them broken and displayed before people. Like, I'm going to win this thing. Watch your venue. Watch how you do it. Watch the way you do it. There's a difference between confrontation, Christ-like confrontation, and condemning and shaming. And then third, be merciful by ruthlessly double-checking your motives. Be merciful. Extend compassionate kindness by double-checking your motives, making sure you're doing it for their good, not for your own agenda. Because the reality is, when we feel condemned and shamed, we need to process that some way, and one of the ways we do it is by kicking the can down the road, and we confront somebody else's sin because it's easier than confronting our own. And is it really for their good, or is it for us to have our conscience placated for a moment? You know what I mean? So make sure we're doing this for the right mo- the motive, and that we do that by praying and reading the scriptures and, and getting some advice. Right? Now, when we're confronted, what do we do? First one, same exact thing. Remember, Jesus has not condemned you. You need to know your position, your security in Christ, that you are forgiven, you are a beloved child of God. Let responses and reactions flow from that. Remind yourself of that truth. Second, also the same thing. Don't confuse confrontation of sin with condemnation or shame. If God in his wisdom is confronting you through a brother or sister by the power of the Spirit, don't be like, don't, don't shame me, don't condemn me. Like, I love you. And, and this is hurting you and the family or you and others. I love you. I mean, remember what Jesus, like, there's a way to do it where it's not condemnation. So don't think any time anybody pushes against you, it's, they're just condemning you or shaming you. No, maybe they're confronting you in the name of Christ. Right? And then third, know you're loved. This is what Jesus tells her. Go, li- go and live differently. Know that you've been loved by God and those confronting you, if it's a good, <laughs> uh, proper confrontation, and go and live differently and trust him with your life. Live well. Now I need to close, um, but here's what I want to do to close. I want to I give you something to chew on this week. That'll be like a mind splinter, hopefully. Um, so Jesus confronts our sin without condemning us. Jesus covers our shame and restores us. This is a beautiful expression of the Jesus we see throughout the entirety of scriptures. This is the story that the Bible tells us from beginning to end. When we read this story on the front end and talked about it, did you pick up those echoes of that famous story in scripture? Did you smell the fragrance of the Garden of Eden? Did you catch some of the shadows of Genesis 3 here? I want to show a few comparisons and then let you chew on it this week. Genesis 3 is the temptation of Adam and Eve, the temptation of Eve. So think of Eve, Adam, the fruit, the serpent, the garden, okay? The fall, right? That's Genesis 3. Watch some of these comparisons. Genesis 3 and John 8. In both of these scenarios, God's word is being used incorrectly by an accuser for his own agenda to harm an image bearer to get at the creator. See it? God's word is being used to hurt an image bearer. His word is being used incorrectly to hurt an image bearer and to get at him. That's what Satan does. That's what these accusers are doing. Second, there is a woman in the spotlight in both of these. 
And she's in the spotlight due to taking what is forbidden. It's in both of them. The man, her partner, is curiously absent. Now, Adam is there in the text, but we don't see him there right in the text when, when Satan is talking to Eve, right? He's there, but he's on the side. He's curiously absent and not engaging. So there's a, a curiously absent man in both, one, both of these stories. Uh, the event, both of these, the event takes place in the place where God and mankind are supposed to walk in union. The garden was a garden temple where God and humanity would walk together. The other one in John 8 takes place in the temple where God and humanity were, come together, uh, were to come together again. The woman is in the middle, right? She's in the middle of the garden. Because it says literally in Hebrew that the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, they're there in the middle. The woman is in the middle, and she is in the middle in our text today. Sin, in both these stories, leads to guilt and shame. They are hiding from God and hiding from each other, putting on their fig leaves, right? They're hiding, and there is hiding, and there is shame in, in our story. Sin leads to division, the division of the image bearers between the genders. Adam says, you gave her to me. It's the woman's fault, and she gets accused. And here the woman is being accused by a group of men. There's a division in the genders. God graciously asks questions of the accused. God comes into the scene of Eden, and he says, where, where are you? Who told you you were naked? And in an incredible parallel, Jesus looks at the woman and says, where, where are they? Anyone condemn you? Anyone telling you you're naked now? Like there's this brilliant parallel. So God confronts the sin. He covers the shame in both of these situations. A sentence to death leads to new life born of grace in both these situations. And in both these situations, they point forward to a needed atonement, an ultimate atonement, because in Eden, an animal was killed so that they could be covered, which pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who would cover us with his righteousness. Lastly, Jesus here in... In this story, um, he is the offspring of Eve that is fighting the offspring of the, of the snake, right? In, in Genesis, it says that there will be an offspring of Eve, and he's going to fight the offspring of the serpents. And the offspring of Eve, he will be bit, but he will crush the serpent's offspring, and he will win, and he will restore. And Jesus is here fighting against the darkness, and he will be bit on the cross. And in doing so, he will crush the head of the serpent, conquering sin, Satan, and death. Man, the Bible. It's beautiful. So how can Jesus not condemn this woman? How can he not condemn these religious leaders? How can he still mete out some grace to them? How did justice and mercy meet? He gets in the dirt. He goes to the cross to take care of our guilt and to cover our shame. God has bent down from heaven and he has written salvation in the dirt. How can we not confront others differently? And let them confront us in a way where we can accept it because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. I, I want to thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Thank you now that we get to come to this table. You are good to us, Lord Jesus. We love you. We need you. Amen.